And now, The Mentors Radio, one of the most popular and unique shows on the air today. Here each week, remarkable CEOs and leaders, including host Tom Laurie and Dan Hesse, and their guests will mentor you, challenging your thinking about life and work. Sought after for their ethical leadership and advice, and for helping others succeed throughout their careers, now these same CEOs, the mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life, at work, and in business. Learn more and check out the show notes at TheMentorsRadio.com. That's TheMentorsRadio.com. And now, here's your mentor. Thank you for joining us. I'm Tom Laurie, and I'll be your host today. Our guest mentor today is Pat Lencioni. Pat is the world's foremost thought leader on making organizations healthier. His 13 best-selling books, which have focused on reducing organizational politics, confusion, and dysfunction, and increasing organizational clarity, alignment, and productivity, have sold over 10 million copies and have been translated into more than 30 languages. Pat has more recently focused on why some leaders have an unconscious unwillingness to do the difficult task and confront the challenging situations required to bring about a healthier and more productive organization which he captures in his book, The Motive. And he's also been focused on something new, uh, the six types of working genius. And we're going to cover both of these topics today. Pat, welcome to The Mentors Radio. We really appreciate your taking the time from our very busy schedule to join us today. Well, it's great to be here. I, you and I are old friends, Tom. And uh, you've been a very important part of my life, and I can't believe I haven't been on here in so many years. So it's fun to actually come on and talk to you and I'm looking forward to wherever this goes. Well, great. Uh, first of all, I think for people, for context, and I got a lot that I'm gonna cover. So very quickly, tell us what is the table group and what does it do? And how long has it been in existence? So the table group has been in existence, Tom, for 27 years. And um, we are dedicated, well, for the first 24 years, we were exclusively dedicated to building healthier organizations, working with CEOs, to make their teams more effective, um, to 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 add clarity to their organization, to help them communicate better and put in human systems, to make it less, as you said in your intro, less political, more productive, better for people. But three years ago, Tom, we refounded our company around truth and human dignity, because as the world has continued to change, we realize that that's happening in organizations as well, and so we kind of raised our game to really address issues of youth and truth and human dignity, in addition to organizational health. So we're doing more with faith-based organizations and and helping companies that are really trying to change the world and help make it a good place to live. And we're doing more around human development as well. So that's where the, the uh, six types of working genius comes in. The motive even speaks to a little bit to that. So after 24 years, we kind of refounded our company with a new set of core values and a new purpose. And you have uh, people that work for their contractors or consultants that go out and work with other companies, right? Yeah. So we have 15 employees um, in about four different locations because as the uh, as the dystopian nightmare that California has become, people are leaving California. So I have employees now all over the country because people, it's hard to keep them here. So we have employees all over. We have 15 employees spread around the country. That's our headquarters where we do our thinking and all that. But we have 50 consultants around the world in multiple continents, in Australia mm. and, and in Europe and South America and in the United States who are working with CEOs and their teams 
Um, and so they are contractors, but they are like friends and family of ours. And uh, many of them have worked with us for over 20 years. And I know a couple of them. And I know, I just want to make sure people were clear on how the organization works. Now, Alan Mullally, who you know very well, and I just got to know, and he's going to be on the show uh, next year. Um, he put me onto a book uh, called Work is Love Made Visible. And I love the title of the book, and I've been going through it in preparation for uh, having Alan on the show. And I found a little uh, piece in there that you wrote. Uh, and you had, and I think what is very, very, very important, and it was a discovery you made about yourself and leadership. What was that? I can't wait to hear this. <laughs> You're the one. I don't remember. Wrote. I'm sure it's mine, but I don't remember what I said or what I wrote. About being a whole person, the need to be a whole person. Right. You said that you had separated yourself from your identity as a professional, from your definition as a person. And you learned that leadership was connecting the two. Absolutely okay. true. Absolutely. Um, in fact, Tom, the book I'm working on right now, my next book is about understanding the whole person from a professional and personal development standpoint and, it, and adding the concept of wounds to that as well. What I've found is so many of the leaders I work with are wounded and it impacts the way they work. Sometimes their 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 wounds is is what they see. They see their wound as a way to succeed and it's helped them in life, but it's not allowed them to be happy and to be the whole person they're meant to be. So right now I'm looking at the concept of how to help a CEO or a leader of any kind go about understanding who they really are and how their wounds are preventing them from living the as the people they're meant to be. Or their wounds could be of great service. Well, in fact, and most CEOs have wounds that are actually part of their success. But and, I mean, like, for, for instance, I have a wound of uh, I felt kind of unseen growing up and and my and love for my parents was felt pretty conditional around my performance. Well, that drove me to succeed and to achieve in so many areas of my life. And so then you look back and you go, okay, I'm 50 years old. I'm not, I'm older now. But when I was 50, I was like, so why do I do this? And why is it not satisfying me? Well, it's because I was doing it to prove that I was worthwhile and not understanding that as a child of God, I'm worthwhile anyway. So now I can work with joy, not with fear. Because for so long, Tom, I worked out of the fear of failure. And, and that can drive, I mean, that can drive athletes and leaders and all kinds of achievement oriented people. But until we rest in who we are in God's eyes, we're not going to be experiencing the peace that we're meant to experience. And are you familiar with the uh, spiritualist, uh, Andre Nguyen, who uh, was Well, I am because this amazing guy named Tom Laurie, literally <laughs> 24 years ago, Five years ago, introduced you brought and in fact, I was going to bring the painting. I have a painting of the um, the product, the return of the prodigal son, because you introduced me to that book, and he he wrote wrote about that years ago. And here I am, twenty four years later, figuring it out on my own. Well, he is uh, called the wounded prophet, which is a great term. And as I tell people, we all know people who are going through tough times. I've certainly gone through mine, but in our wounds, we become more open to other people. It's it's one of the beautiful things that people don't understand is their woundedness makes them more available to do the good work that uh, God intended them to do. 
Yes, but we need to be aware of what they are and we need to be working toward healing. Um, yes. I, I don't know if you're familiar with a book by, by a guy named Bob Schutz. It's very popular in the Catholic community right now, but it's and it's called Be Healed. And and Bob is the guy, he's a psychologist who later in life discovered his own wounds. And he and it's a it's a it's a real basis for some of the work I'm doing right now. So he is a fantastic thinker and a really deep guy. And he he talks about the seven kinds of wounds that people experience and how we have to heal from those. But you're absolutely right. It's in the humility and in the suffering of our wounds that we become more empathic and more open to others and that we can help others. Okay, we're going to have to take a quick break. We're with Pat Lencioni, who's the world thought leader on making organizations healthier. This is Tom Laurie, and you're listening to The Mentors Radio Show. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Laurie, and I'm with Pat Lencioni, author of The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, which has sold over 4 million copies and has been listed weekly as one of the top five business books for almost uh, over 21 years now. That's quite an achievement in itself. I'm always amazed when I'm looking at the Wall Street Journal list of books and there's your book sitting there in the top five. Um, I'm amazed too. (laughs) It's really something. It's really got legs. So a little bit about yourself. How how did you find your way into the world of organizational development uh, with a focus on organizational health? Well, you know, I grew up, my parents did not go to college. I came from central California, Bakersfield, which is a little slice of Oklahoma in the middle of California. And they didn't go to college and I didn't know what I wanted to do. But I remember my dad, when I was a kid, Tom, coming home from work and being frustrated with something he called management. He was a salesperson, God rest his soul. And he was really good at it. His customers liked him, but he was nothing but frustrated by management. And I came to learn later why, but at the time I just thought, this is crazy. My dad goes to work for nine hours a day and he comes home frustrated. And it stuck with me. And the first few jobs I had, I was really aware of that. So I get out of college, I get a job at at one of the most prestigious management consulting firms. And I find myself completely distracted by culture. And we'd go into these companies and try to do quantitative analysis and help them with strategy. But I was like, but the leadership is messed up and these people don't even get along and they're not honest with each other. And so my interest in business was really driven by the human side of things. And I found that to be so important. And so many organizations, including the management consulting firm where I worked, they weren't interested in the human side. They were interested in just the numbers and the quantitative stuff and strategy and tactics and finance and and marketing, all of which was interesting, but I was fascinated by the human side, which I think is the great multiplier of success in an organization. And as somebody that's been building companies for a lot of years, I agree with you 100%. It's all about the people. It's all about the culture. I, I I did turnarounds for American Hospital Supply before I got in the venture side. And what I realized that some of the turnarounds fell into problems, had problems because it was a culture class. No one thought about the cultures before they acquired a company. Yeah, and and culture is not soft. People think culture is like, oh, the way we paint our building or do we have a slide or do we give people food? Culture is how you go about getting things done and who you hire and what values they ascribe to. And so I found this the same thing, Tom. I've seen a couple mergers and acquisitions and when the numbers look good, they find any way to justify, oh, the cultures will be fine. And inevitably, 
if they really haven't done their due diligence around that and really figured it out, it comes back to bite you. So many mergers and acquisitions don't work precisely because of that, but because so many firms don't know how to quantify that, they kind of turn their turn and look the other way. So that was my job, coming into a troubled situation, learning that, and then trying to figure out how to fix it. Yeah. That's what I did for 13 years. And there's nothing touchy-feely about that, but there's some people that go, oh, that's soft. It's like, no, it's not soft. It's just hard to quantify. Not touchy-feely because you're bound to be letting some people go. Right. Period. Well, listen, I don't want to talk about my career. I want to talk more about you. And what got us going initially for this talk, for this interview, is your book, The Motive. And we're going to spend a little bit of time on that, and then we'll, we'll switch gears into talking about working genius. But in the motive, you know, first thing I wanted to ask is you dedicate the book to Sister Marie, Regina Marie Gorman and Weldon Larson. Who are these people? They must have been important in your life. Yeah, Sister Regina Marie is a Carmelite nun from Los Angeles who would have been a CEO had she gone that path. But thankfully, she became a nun and she is amazing. She was the the mother superior down there for a couple of terms for like a decade. She is one of the most amazing leaders, but she's so humble and she does it for the right reasons. And then this other guy, Weldon is such a dear friend of mine who's retired now, but had such a humility about him. And they really understood that leadership is about others. They have the right motive in leadership. And in, the motive for leadership should be about service. It should be a burden, but the, the so many leaders serve I mean, become leaders because they're really interested in the rewards that they're going to get out of it. And I, I met so many CEOs, I'd give them advice and they go, why would I want to do that? I don't like doing that. And I was like, but it's not about you. It's about the people you're leading. And it's so basic. And, and I, as I like to say, I should have written the motive first because for years I've been writing books about how leaders should lead. But the first question should be, why do you want to be a leader in the first place? And if a person wants to be a leader, because they think it's going to make them wealthy or famous or even just cool, or they're going to have the authority to do whatever they feel like doing. If they're not doing it because they're actively taking on the burden of caring for others, they're not going to want to do the things that leaders have to do. They're going to pick and choose based on their own personal economics. And that's a recipe for failure in, in an organization. This is Tom Laurie. You're listening to the Mentors Radio Show. We're with organizational thought leader and author, Pat Lencioni. Um, I would agree. I mean, in the world I live in and startups, I can see two oh. different kinds of people. There are those that are in it for the money and there are those that are really mission driven. And fortunately, I'm in the healthcare side, which a lot of mission driven people are in the healthcare side. Uh, you know, you have a chance to treat cancer and help millions of people worldwide. It's a uh, transcend transcendental uh, mission in some ways. Uh, but I see it all the time. And uh, and you can't get through some of the tough stuff if it's all about money. Well, and you look at the Theranos situation, and the, which was in supposedly in healthcare. I mean, it turned out not to be. But that woman was driven by one thing. She wanted to be. And it's not just rich. You know, I, it's so funny. To say, I think it's money, but I think it's fame and notoriety. I think it's pride. Pride is the root of all sin. And if you're becoming a leader, Go to a graduation ceremony and people say, go out there and change the world. I always want to say, no, don't try to change the world if you're doing it because it's about you. And the Silicon Valley, Tom, you know, is all these leaders who do who are doing it because they want to be cool. And, and, and yet I work with some companies 
that there's that, that are really important companies and you wouldn't know the CEO if you walked in your office right now and, and and knocked on your door because it's not about them. And I think there's so many leaders out there that are doing it about themselves and that's so dangerous. In the world of politics that's been true for quite a while and we see what happens when 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 we have leaders that are doing it for themselves not for the people they're supposed to be leading. Well there's a reason I live in the East Bay and not on the peninsula. Yeah. Well, there's a reason I'm moving out of California. <laughs> <laughs> so let's so be clear for the audience. We're talking about two types of leadership, reward-centered leadership, which you've talked about, and responsibility-centered leadership. Talk a little bit more about responsibility-centered leadership. This is that person who gets made CEO, let's say, and says, oh my gosh. Instead of saying, I finally arrived and I've made it, they're saying, oh Lord, uh, this is going to be a huge burden. I need to make sure that I am doing the right things for the people I lead because I have human beings that are customers and that are employees and that are other constituents. And I have the responsibility of serving them. The personal economics of being a CEO is very poor. I mean, if you really looked at it, if you really wanted to say, this is something that's going to serve me versus others, there's a selflessness and a sacrifice of being a leader that, that all leaders should accept when they take that role. You know, Tom, you and I are both Catholic. There's a there's a room that when the Pope gets made Pope, they, he goes into what they call the room of tears because he realizes this is the end of me doing what I want to do. And it's all about serving others. And every leader should think about it that way. And, um, and so it's about saying, I'm doing this for others. And at the end of the day, I will have to draw my satisfaction from knowing others have benefited, even if it was costly and difficult for me. Well, your subtitle for the motive is why so many leaders abdicate their most important responsibilities. <laughs> Before we close out this segment, you want to talk a little bit about that again, because that's really the key to all of this. Yeah, there's there's four or five things that leaders don't like to do if they're if they're reward centered, if they're doing it for themselves. One of them is they don't like to run good meetings. They think, you know, leaders say, I hate meetings. They're they're boring. So they only go to the ones they feel like going to. And the other ones they just kind of throw in the towel. The other is managing their direct reports. Even a CEO of a big company has to manage his or her direct reports. They have to know what they're working on. They have to help them troubleshoot. They have to give them feedback. And they have to keep them on track. And so many leaders that become CEOs are like, ah, I've been managing my whole life. I don't want to do it anymore. These are adults. They can figure it out. Another one is building a team. So many CEOs go, I don't really feel like doing that. That's soft. I'll have HR do that. And as as we know, we all know you can't delegate that. Another one is a lot of them don't like to repeat themselves. A lot of CEOs are like, I'm tired of giving that talk. And the best leaders are the ones that are constantly, we talked about Alan Mulally before. He was constantly reminding people of what mattered. I remember a year after Alan took over, he'd stabilized Ford. And the Wall Street Journal said, what do you have for us? We want a new message. He goes, no, I'm going to stay to the old message. They go, no, that's boring. We've already covered. He goes, it doesn't matter. I'm not here to entertain you or me. I want to keep us on track. And great leaders remind people about what's important. And those are the kind of activities that a lot of CEOs go, none of that sounds very interesting to me. It doesn't really sound fun. It's kind of boring. I'm just going to go work on the things that I think sound fun. And that's because they're trying to entertain themselves rather than serving the organization. And so we, when you become the CEO, you don't get to choose what you work on. You work on what the organization needs, regardless if that's what you like doing. And that's why it's such a selfless role. It's like being a parent. 
did I want to change diapers? Did I want to go to every little league game? Did I want to do all those things? No, but that's what my kids needed. So it's, and when people become parents because they want to do it for themselves, a lot of people do that. You become a CEO because you do it for yourself. You're going to cause a lot of hurt in the people who need you. And so, I mean, it sounds so basic, but so many CEOs, Tom called me and said, and wrote me notes that said, Pat, I was leading for the wrong reason for so many years and I'm going to change. And, and, and Tom, I slipped into this. I started my company with good reason. Then I got kind of tired and started saying, I just want to go to work and work on what I want. That's the wrong thing to do. So we're all susceptible to, to slipping into the wrong motive. It's got to be about others. It can't be about ourselves. So we're going to go to break. We're going to come back, touch a little bit more on that, and then we're going to go talk about the working genius. We're going to be right back after a short break. We're with Pat Lencioni, who's the world's thought leader on making organizations healthier. You can listen to this show and past shows on all popular podcast platforms or by going to our website, thementorsradio.com. Subscribe while you're there so you don't miss any future shows. That's thementorsradio.com. This is Tom Laurie, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now... Back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Laurie, and I'm with Pat Lencioni, author of The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, which has sold over 4 million copies and has been listed weekly as one of the top five business books for over 21 years. So now when you go back to this um, serving, the, the term servant leadership has been used a lot in the last, I don't know, 15 years or so. How does that fit in? Well, I like to say, I think I, I, I would prefer that we stopped saying servant leadership because that's the only kind. Because when we say, oh, that guy's a great servant leader or she's a great servant leader, the implication is that there could be any different one. I don't, if you're not a servant leader, you're not really a leader. You're just using your organization to satisfy your needs. But, but I get it. I get it. Servant leadership is just the recognition that this is not about me. You know, and 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 I I don't like those cheesy things like turning the org chart upside down, but if you think about it, the CEO should be at the bottom saying my job is to serve all these other people who do the work of satisfying clients or solving problems or inventing the next drug or whatever it is. And that that really is how we should look at it. Rival same take, but a little different twist. And oh, I want to hear job. My job as a CEO is not only to do that, but more importantly, is to clear the obstacles that are keeping people from doing their jobs. And it could be things in Washington. There's all sorts of things. And that's where the more I can clear the path so people can do their job, the better things are. That's what I've learned. Yeah. And I, I think that that belongs at the bottom of that org chart. It doesn't mean you don't have to, you do have to get out front, but your job is to make it possible for them to do their right. job. And, right. and you don't get to go, well, that's an obstacle they have, but I don't really feel like solving that problem. I really want to work on this other thing over here. It's really determined by the needs of your people, not by your interests. That's right. Well, I want to switch gears. We could spend a lot of more time talking about that. As you know, <laughs> it's, if yeah. you have all those CEOs writing you, um, so tell us about your newest, do you have a book? I, I know we have the assessment. I took an assessment. It has to do with the six types of working genius. I don't know if there's a book or you, I know you can go online. So let's talk a little bit about that and what brought this about. Well, so the funny thing is the assessment came about before the book. So we, three years ago, Tom, just after COVID, after two months into COVID or so, we decided we're going back to work. 
So we're a small company. We said, we're going back. I know the rest of the company was country was already open, but California, we were still like a year from, or a year and a half from opening up. But we said, we're going to go back to work. We're doing everything on Zoom. And I, and I was in a meeting with a group where I was really excited about. It was, I was actually communicating to a bunch of Catholic priests, teaching them how to be better leaders. And then I had another meeting right after that on Zoom where I had to give some people some feedback that was kind of difficult. I didn't like that at all. And then I went to another, the next meeting, which I was coming up with a new idea for a podcast. And, and the, the woman that was with me, Amy, turned to me and said, Pat, why are you like that? Why do you go from being happy to being sad to being happy at work? And this had been going on for 20 years for me. And I said, I don't know, Amy, but I want to fix it because I'm tired of it. And that day, over the course of the next four hours, I figured out what was causing me to be fairly regularly grumpy at work. And what it turned out to be is that there, I found out there were six different kinds of work that have to happen in any kind of project. In any endeavor, there's six different kinds of work. And, and I was only great at two of them. And every day I was coming in and have, being forced to do things I didn't really like to do. And, and that didn't mean I didn't have to be responsible for that. Because like I said before, it, it, with the motive, you're the CEO, you have to make sure things get done. But you don't necessarily have to be the person who does every activity. No CEO is good at everything. And so when we figured that out, that really solved my problem. Then I said, wait a second. This, I think, is universal. This isn't just about me. The next day, a CEO of one of our clients saw that model that I came up with because somebody, somebody saw it, and he was in tears. And he said, that model explains why I've been so unhappy at work. And so over the next two weeks, everybody that came to my house was doing it. Laura, my wife, you know her. We were like explaining it to people. And we realized there was something, there was a real breakthrough here. And so three months later, we, we came up with, a, with an assessment for how a person can go about identifying their own working genius, as we'd like to say. Because out of those six types of work, Tom, two of them give you joy and energy. And like you told me your genius is today. You, you get your energy and joy out of doing two things really well. Well, you and I have completely different geniuses. Now, here's the thing. Two of those things, though, are your working frustrations. They rob you of joy and energy. Well, you should not put yourself in a position at work to do the things that rob you of your joy and energy. Well, we, we launched this assessment pretty quietly uh, about three years ago, and it is now, you know, three quarters of a million people have taken this, and it's growing like crazy because there's Myers-Briggs and there's, there's, there's DISC and there's all these tools out there, but this is the one that tells you what kind of work you should be doing, not what your personality is, not how you see the world, but the kind of work that gives you joint energy. And we saw executive teams reorganize in 20 minutes after taking this test. We saw a CEO take his lawyer and put him in charge of technology because he was the only one that had the genius of invention and they needed that. And so this is, this is just the fastest way. It's a 12 minute assessment that allows people to understand the gifts God gave them and the gifts that they didn't get so they can say, I'm terrible at some things and I'm really good at other things. And you watch teams productivity go through the roof when they when they take a look at the, the results. Well, let's come back and talk some more about this. Uh, we're with Pat Lencioni, who's the world's thought leader on making organizations healthier. We'll have a link to Pat's book, uh, The Motive, on our website. And I, I don't know if you have a book out. I, I know you've got the assessment. We'll talk about that in the next segment. This is Tom Laurie, and this is The Mentors Radio Show. And now, 
Back to the Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Roy, and I'm with Pat Lencioni, author of The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, which has sold over 4 million copies and has been listed weekly as one of the top five business books for over 21 years. If you're listening to this show on your favorite podcast platform, please scroll down and give us a five-star review. Those seeking wisdom on life and career will appreciate it. Okay, let's go back to the, the model for the five geniuses and get into it. And I, I have taken it, and I am strong, and you can get into the various uh, the six geniuses. I'm, I'm, I'm a genius of wonder and a genius of discernment. And then my working genius, I think you call it, is genius of uh, galvanizing and tenacity. And then the other, the other two, I'll let you go through that. But I also want to note for the audience, you get the assessment, uh, you get feedback, areas where I am, I uh, have working genius, working competency, that would be the next two, and then working frustration would be the last two, unique pairing, pairings, and how to apply the results. All that comes, and you will put a, we'll put a link on the website, uh, so you can go there. Uh, it's $25 uh, to take the assessment and the, the book separate. And you should talk a little bit about the what the book offers that the assessment doesn't. So right. over to you. So so the model goes like this, Tom. And, and it starts at 50,000 feet. We like to think of elevation. And every piece of work starts with the first genius of wonder. The genius of wonder is the person who ponders things and, and kind of stares into the space and, and looks around and says, what's going on here in this organization or what's going on in the world and what does the world need and what's missing? And they, they ask the big questions, right? My wife is a wonderer. So she's always pondering like, why is it like this? Is this really, could there be a better way? The next genius is the genius of invention. This is one of mine. Whereas I hear the wonderer say, gosh, I wish there was a better way to do this. And I say, oh, I want to come up with a better idea. And I like to come up with original thinking out of nowhere. Give me a white um, whiteboard, a blank whiteboard and a pen. And that's what I love to do. Some people have the genius of invention. Those are the first two, wonder and invention. And that's where ideation comes into play. The next one after invention, though, is the person that has the gift of discernment, which is they just have gut feel for analyzing things and knowing if an idea is going to work or not. And it's not because they're smart. It's not because they have domain expertise. It's because they just are wired to see things in patterns that are instinctual, intuitive, and not very linear. So like we had a guy on our team, and when he saw this model, he said, Pat, this is going to be bigger than the five dysfunctions of the team. I know it in my gut. And it's proven to be true. This is growing faster and having a big impact, bigger impact than anything I've ever done, Tom. And he knew it. And I know people that have, you just know those people, you ask them a question and they say, hey, what do you think about this? And they always have a gut feel that's right. That's discernment. But after that comes your genius, which is the genius of galvanizing. And that is, these are the kind of people that wake up every morning and say, I want to rally the troops. I want to keep them on track. I want to remind them. I want to push them forward. I want to enlist the support of more people. And you are a master at that. Tom, that's the thing I was doing every day that I didn't like. I did it for 20 years in my own business. I'd come to work ready to be an inventor and a discerner. And I, and I was constantly being asked to galvanize. And though I could do it for a while, it was burning me out. So if you worked with me, Tom, I would say, Tom, I want you to be the chief galvanizing officer because you get joy and energy from doing that. And it allows you to do what you're best at. So it goes wonder, invention, discernment, galvanizing. 
The third one is called enablement. And this is a genius that people don't think they really have. And these are the kind of people when you say, I need your help, they get joy and energy out of saying, yes, I want to, I'm, I'm there. They sign up. They're the ultimate team players. They fill in the gaps. They provide the glue in the organization. And you and I did a, a kind of a startup enterprise once years ago. And, and you know, those kind of people, you go, we need somebody to do this. And they're like, I'll do it. They're the first to, to volunteer. And they're, they just want to serve, to provide what somebody is asking for. And it is an absolute genius. A team without en enablement doesn't succeed. And then finally, the last genius, which is the other one that you have, is called tenacity. And that is, these are people that blow through obstacles. They never get tired. They're going to get the work done. They're going to accomplish the goal. And they are so critical in organization because they push the ball across the finish line. Well, Tom, I don't have any of that. I've written 13 books. I would have written none of them if I didn't have people around me with tenacity who said, keep going. It's not good enough yet. You'll get there. Keep going. And you are masterful at that. That's why you've been doing all this medical research and you don't get deterred. If there's a, if there's a, a, an obstacle, you go, yeah, let's plow through that. I'll, I'll do that. Whereas other people would say, that's just not my thing. And what I like to say, Tom, is one man's trash is another man's treasure. I love inventing for a living. I have people that work for me that said, if you had me to do, if I had to do inventing for a living, I would quit my job. So the very thing that I love the most Somebody else on my team hates doing. And now we celebrate that. And we're like, isn't it great that you're good at the things I'm terrible at? And I'm good at the things you're terrible at. And teams reorganize their activities once they realize what their working geniuses of their, of their peers are. So what you, what you do is you can do a team thing. And then because you show this on the assessment on how you can match up people in an organization. In fact, there's and a team match map. Up, match up their geniuses to what's needed in the organization. Yeah. And, and, and you, if a team takes this, they, they do their team map and you look at all the six areas and you realize, oh my gosh, we don't have anybody on our team. Like I worked with a team, a technology, you know, the company, it's a big technology company, always behind the curve. Nobody on their executive team had invention, but one guy, it wasn't the head of technology. It wasn't the head of marketing. They were, and they, they looked at the results and they said, it's no wonder we haven't had a product in five years that was on the ahead of the curve that made the magic quadrant. And they said, the only person on our team with invention is the lawyer, their chief legal counsel. You know something? He's now in charge of new technology acquisition. They said, you understand how to come up with new ideas. We are going to put you in charge of that. And he goes, but I'm a lawyer. And they go, it doesn't matter. We don't care what your training is. You have invention. He goes, well, I love doing that. So now he gets to do that in his job. Purely because he discovered that was one of his gifts. So as I mentioned to you uh, before the recording of the broadcast, the company I've been running for seven years, we're going through an acquisition. The guy that's putting this whole thing together, which is going to be uh, something that'll make the news, is a lawyer. We tend to think a job description defines a person. One of the things that one of my colleagues says is this is this kind of takes off job. Somebody might be in charge of marketing, but they're they're good at, at cranking out leads and getting things done because they have like you know, tenacity. Another person might be in charge of marketing. They have wonder and invention. They're coming up with a new slogan. It doesn't matter what your job description is. You need to know what part of that job you love and then hire people to do the parts of it that you don't do well. And now how many people, you said you'd started this about three years ago. How many people have done the assessment now? Three quarters of a million people we think will be, and we've had like 
almost 3000 people get certified. So there's people all over the world now that are certified in this and that are training it. It is growing much faster than anything we've ever done at the table group. And, and staffing, people are staffing their organizations by saying, instead of saying we need to hire somebody to do sales, they're like, well, what kind of sales? Let's look at the working genius and decide which letters are most important and find people who love doing those things. We're going to come right back after a short break. We're with Pat Lencioni, who's a world thought leader on making organizations healthier. You'll find all of our show notes and a link to Pat's book, The Motive, and a link to the six types of working genius at our our website, thementorsradio.com. This is Tom Laurie, and this is The Mentors Radio Show. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Laurie, and I'm with Pat Lencioni. On the uh, six types, maybe for the audience, how is this different from StrengthsFinder 2.0? I think it's important that you delineate what that is, what those differences are. Sure. And I know Marcus Buckingham and other people over at StrengthsFinder. You know, for one, they have, there's like 30 different types of strengths. And I've done StrengthsFinder, but I can never remember kind of what they are. And and the, the key to this model, Tom, is that there are six things that are required in getting anything done. You start at wonder, I have an idea. Somebody else says, I can solve that problem. Somebody else says, I can evaluate that. Somebody else says, I'll get people motivated. Somebody else says, I'll help. Somebody else says, I'll make sure it gets finished. There are six way, things that have to get done, in, whether you're planning a family vacation, starting a company, or launching a new product. That model of getting work done is, is fairly sequential. I mean, you bop around. When you look at it in terms of the way work gets done, this becomes more of a productivity tool than it does just a profiling tool. So, so the 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 like I know in StrengthsFinder, I'm a wooer. I have woo. That's the one I remember. But I can never remember all 30 of them. I don't remember which ones I'm bad at. But when you look at this, it takes 12 minutes to do this assessment. People look at the results on the team and individually. Right away, they get it. They're like, oh, this makes total sense. And then they look at it and they go, that's why that project failed is because I didn't have any discernment or I didn't have, we didn't have anybody on the team with T. So it's much more applied to getting work done in the moment. And so I think that's the biggest difference. I think StrengthsFinder is very interesting, but I, we, we always had clients that say, we don't know how to apply it. This is all about applying it to work immediately. Well, I would say that after taking the assessment, I think you nailed it as when it comes to me. I mean, I, I looked at it and I said, that's, you know, I'm not the inventor. I'm the guy that the inventor brings in to create, create an organization. Let's put it that way. Exactly. And you're going to get people mobilized. You're going to appeal to people's desire to do it. And then you're going to make sure they get something done. And the project I worked on with you about, you were great at that. Had I been in charge of that project that you did, that we did that time together, had had I been in charge of it, not you, it would have never got finished. It would have been really well designed, but I would not have had the persistence to keep it moving until we succeeded. And it's still going. That thing you designed is still going, Tom. Many years later. For the audience, again, you've got the assessment and we'll post a link. You'll give me the link and we'll post that to our, our notes. So what does the book give you beyond the assessment? So all of my books are fiction, Tom, You know, except for one. I'm a, I was a screenwriter in a previous life. So the book describes, and I have to admit, 
I did something crazy a few weeks ago. I actually listened to this book on tape. I've never listened to any of my own books on audio. I don't know why, but I finally did. And it's what the idea of what it is, it's to give you characters that bring about these ideas in a way that makes you understand them in a, in a deeper way. So all of my books are fiction. People like the fact that I write fiction because it's easy to read. And it makes you understand how this applies in a deeper way. But what I would tell people to do is don't go buy the book right away. Go do the assessment. See who you are. You're going to understand it. And then use the book as an application tool because the back of the book has all kinds of different application tools as well. Um, but go to, go to workinggenius.com. You're going to see a lot of free resources there, a lot of stuff that you can use. Workinggenius.com. And, and that's where you can do the assessment and get the team map and learn more about everything, including in the book. And with your, you know, one of the things I've always been amazed, I've worked with, well, I know you, and I also know Ram Sharan. And the thing that you and Ram share is you go out and see all these companies and then you see all these dots and you connect them. Uh, I mean, it's fascinating. Uh, and so this came out of all of that work, as you've seen. So what, out of all that, and we've got just a little bit of time left. I'm curious, you've met a lot of people, you've done a lot of things. Those people that you feel are the happiest with their life and how it's going, what is that thread that ties all those people together? Well, humility is, is key. And that is, they know that they're not the most important person in the world. And what I love, C.S. Lewis says, the definition of humility is not that you think less of yourself, but you think about yourself less. And I love that. Another definition I heard is that there is a God and I'm not him. And so the people I know that are happiest realize it's not about me. I'm not the most important person. I'm here to serve and I'm comfortable with that. And, and that I meet CEOs that are really, really famous and really successful that aren't happy. And I meet other people that are just so happy in their own skin. And I think it comes down to humility. Well, great. That's it for today. We've been talking with organizational health thought leader, Pat Lencioni, whose books have sold over 10 million copies. I want to thank you, Pat, for joining us today. If you missed any of the show, you'll find a link to the show on our website, thementorsradio.com. You will also find show notes and a link to Pat's books. That's thementorsradio.com. Join us next week at the same time for the next edition of The Mentors Radio. Until then, this is Tom Laurie signing off for today. Remember to be all you can be and keep the candle lit for all who struggle in the darkness. It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. To get more information about the program or a sponsor, to download a podcast of today's show, or to leave a question for our host, go to TheMentorsRadio.com. That's www.TheMentorsRadio.com. The preceding program, copyright CBJ, LLC. All rights reserved.